0: if you're investing in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Boston, Miami, the big gateway metros, it's bad for you. If you're investing anywhere else, it's great for you. And if you're investing in tertiary markets, it's phenomenal for you because America's true tertiary markets have now all of a sudden in an 18-month accelerated time frame become institutional grade markets. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan,
1: where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies, to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on investors and welcome to episode 247 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Neil Bawa back on the show. Neil is a data scientist turned real estate investor who uses data to discover the best markets in the United States to invest in. In today's episode, Neil will talk to us about how the pandemic has made significant changes to the economic trends that will alter the way that we invest in real estate for the foreseeable future. So if you want to know the best markets to invest in to take advantage of these trends, then you need to listen to this episode. By the way, if you're an active real estate investor, then you need to have a solid lender on your team. And if you're looking for a hard money loan, I can help. We do hard money loans nationwide at great rates and can close in 10 to 14 days. So if you're looking for a hard money loan, you can reach me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener and I'll give you a discount on our processing fees. And now onto the show. Neil, thank you so much for coming back on our show. For those of you who haven't been listening to the podcast that long, uh, Neil was back on our show way back on episode 69, where he talked all about using data-driven tactics to find the different markets. And it was such an amazing episode. In fact, I use these same strategies today when I pick out my own markets out of state. And so we're really happy to have Neil back on. But for those who don't know who you are, Neil, go ahead and introduce yourself. Let's know who you are and tell us what you
0: do. Thank you. Great to be back on the show. Sean and um yeah I'm a data driven data scientist um technologist recovering technologist I should say and I use large blocks of data large data sets to determine the best places best cities and best neighborhoods in the United States to invest in. I also determine the best asset classes. So unlike most people that show up on Sean's show, I'm not tied to multifamily in any way. I invest in six different asset classes. The bread and butter is still multifamily because it's very strong, but there's many other asset classes that we invest in because the data points us in that direction. About a $500 billion portfolio, properties in 10 states, both value add and new construction assets. And currently about 550 investors that invest with us, about 12,000 investors are registered to make use of our data, which comes out four times a year.
1: Very cool. And so what's been going on over the past two years? Like what's like the the latest and greatest update from you?
0: Oh, I don't know. That's a a loaded question. I could be going for hours here because the most strange things are happening in the marketplace. And, you know, you, you may have, if you're listening to Sean's podcast, you probably know some of this already, but the extent of the, incredible stuff that's going on is not visible, right? So I'll just start with this. You know, multifamily rents rose about 2% over the last 30 years. In the last 10 years, they rose 3%. In the last 12 months, they rose 12%. That's four times the already accelerated speed. That's six times the 30-year rate. Obviously, something strange is happening here. And you would expect that if rents were rising at 12%, that nobody would be able to afford them. And so occupancy in the US multifamily market would drop. Last month, we had the highest occupancy in multifamily in the history of multifamily at 97.3% of all units occupied. So we simultaneously have the highest rent growth of all time and the highest occupancy of all time. And it's kind of hard to decide why this is happening. Obviously, there's a number of factors that we can talk about. There's these disruptive trends that Sean and I wanted to talk about today, but this is just one side of the equation. Like even though this sounds incredible, right? Anybody that's buying multifamily or single family rentals are like, wow, 12 years of rent growth, right? When we underwrite multifamily properties that we're buying and we're buying one in Killeen right now in, in, near Austin, we underwrite 5 years of rent growth to be at 12% sometimes we'll underwrite in you know really high quality areas we'll we'll say 5 years at 15 well when I mean, you get 12 of that in the first year you just gobsmacked with what's happening but what if you didn't get any of that rent growth what if it was zero what if they, like there was nothing happening at all i'd still be happy because of what's happening in cap rates so Cap rates in the United States are compressing at a rate that we have never seen before, even though we've seen cap rate compression for the last 10 years. By the way, lower cap rates means higher prices. So we want cap rates to compress. We want them to go down. And they've been going down fairly steadily over the last 10 years. But in the last six or seven months, they've been compressing at an insane rate. 50-year-old class C assets, not class B, not class A, 50-year-old class C assets are now regularly selling under four cap. These are value-add assets. People do expect to add value to them, but nobody was selling class C assets at four cap before the pandemic. So there's something highly unusual happening here just from a cap rate compression perspective, and you know we can talk more about this. I mean, this is what I'm seeing in the marketplace and it's leaving me completely amazed. And I think that my contemporaries who manage large portfolios are sort of in the same boat. Nobody's saying, I, I knew this would happen.
1: Yeah, so it's pretty amazing. So not only do you have record low vacancy rates, right? You also have record high growth for rents and because capers are being compressed, now the prices are going up as well. So it's like firing on all-cell for multifamily.
0: Yeah, yes. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine anything better than this at this point in time. Because, you know, we, we are now seeing delinquencies ebb away. There was the challenge with delinquencies where some of our tenants were not paying. We see delinquencies, you know, falling. They've been falling now for the last six months as more and more people are getting back to work. The government is still providing, especially in the blue states, a lot of support. to to tenants that are unable to pay. So, you know, there's all this talk of a tsunami of um, foreclosures. Well, forget the tsunami, we haven't found a wave yet. And not only have we not found it in in high performing asset classes like multifamily, there's no tsunami in hotels. There's no tsunami in retail. There's no tsunami in offices. You would expect that offices, retail and, and hotels would be much more affected by the pandemic well i don't see any fire sales in any asset class in america none whatsoever i'm invested as a as a limited partner in hotels i'm invested in offices there's no bad news that i can discern i'm not an, a professional in that space but there's no bad news that i know of so we are seeing some astonishing effects and there's a couple you know of the disruptive trends that sort of point me in the direction of why we are seeing these and so hopefully we can talk more about those.
1: Yeah, let's hop into them. Um, like, Why? Why do you think this is happening, especially for, I guess, the multifamily
0: side? Sure. So I'll back up for a second and say, you know, each year, one of the presentations that we provide about ten to 15,000 people watch this presentation is called the trends presentation. And often we'll combine the trends presentation with our annual list of best cities to invest in. This year we decided not to do that because there was such craziness going on in the marketplace that we decided you know, it, it has to be a separate presentation. We'll do the, the regular presentation, which we did back in Jan, You know, talk about the best cities to invest in. We gave Phoenix the highest ranking with Austin having a, a very high ranking as well. Um, but then we were like, okay, let's now tra- talk about the trends. And there's many disruptive trends. The one that is very interesting to me is hybrid work. So I'll start off by giving you a snapshot of what's happening in the, in the United States. There's 333 million people that live today in the United States, and roughly 200 million of those people work, right? So that's uh, you know maybe a little more, 205, 210 million of those people are in the working force, the rest are children or are aged, or simply don't wanna work. Amongst those 210 million people, Roughly 80 million of those are white collar workers. These are people that work at a desk. They, you know, they push paper, they work in computers, they write code. You know, anybody that works at a desk, like the IRS has tens of thousands of people, you know, pushing paper and and figuring out figuring out whether people are paying their taxes. Those are all paper pushers. So they're white collar workers. These 80 million people. So now we've gone from 333 million to 210 million to 80 million white collar workers. Our data suggests, and we've spent a lot of time looking at this data because it's so key to multifamily, that of those 80 million, 22 million of them have been freed from going to the office. Right? It's a pretty small portion of the US's population, if you think about it, 330 million people, 22% is about, you know, 22 million is about six or seven percent. So six or seven percent of America's population is now completely free from their desk they can work from anywhere we think that the eventual number will be a lot higher than 22 million but it's at least this high and and, and imagine of those 22 million people that are freed from they can that can work from anywhere they can live in the caribbean they can live in puerto rico of those people 10 percent about 2 million people have moved so far and ten percent of those people, having moved, having changed their, their, their location, has already caused an enormous change in real estate. Right? We talked about that at the beginning of this podcast. I gave you certain numbers that are, you know, beyond earth-shaking. I don't know. I don't know what comes after the word earth-shaking because you know the earth is basically shaking itself to bits at this point. The changes are so rapid. So when I look at those two million people and I say, so of the twenty-two million people. That now are going to make decisions on where they live. Only two million have made those decisions, only 10%. And 10% causes this astonishing change, right? This astonishing change is that New York and San Francisco have dropped, you know, rents that have basically been negative. And places that people wanted to go live in, whether it's Phoenix, whether it's Austin, whether it's Boise, whether you know it's it's Nashville. Those places are seeing astonishing rent increases, and that's 10%. What happens, Sean, when the remaining 90% move, as I expect them to move over the next three or four years, because of this concept of hybrid work, where employers are either just letting you work from home, or they're giving you a great deal of flexibility. So we are in the first full year of this hybrid work experiment, where we've trained 300 million CEOs in the world. 300 million CEOs now know how to run their companies remotely because they had no choice, right? So in my mind, 30 years of technological advancement when we talk about working from home occurred in a year, right? And that is a world-changing event. And it could have been bad for multifamily. It could have been good and we would have had no choice None of us had play here, we were just bystanders. But as it turned out, it was dramatically good for multifamily if you're not investing in gateway metros. If you're investing in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Boston, Miami, the big gateway metros, it's bad for you. If you're investing anywhere else, it's great for you. And if you're investing in tertiary markets, it's phenomenal for you because America's true tertiary markets have now all of a sudden in an 18-month accelerated time frame, become institutional grade markets. Companies with $10 billion in assets want to invest in Idaho Falls and St. George. I don't think these companies had even heard of Idaho Falls two years ago. I don't think they'd heard of St. George. And I don't think if they had, they would have ever agreed to invest there. But things have changed. So the guys with the most amount of money have the most number of analysts. Those analysts are making predictions about the fact that people are going to go into these smaller cities. And so you're seeing incredible increases in value in these areas. And I expect that that will continue. And if these places are beautiful and have jobs, they're going completely insane. And I'll mention a few of them. Uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho for example isn't one that's very interesting it's very beautiful it's not really much of an Idaho city it's most of mostly like a Washington state city because it's right next to Spokane it's you know 20 miles from so- Spokane so it really serves the Spokane metro and Seattle has made so much money that those people you know some of them have moved over to Spokane and they go to Coeur d'Alene for for fun because it's a it's a it's a very beautiful town so There's incredible population growth happening in Coeur d'Alene. Idaho Falls, it's it's gaining population from Boise, which is becoming very expensive. Boise itself is seeing massive population growth. And we're seeing it in Phoenix. And most importantly, we're seeing it in the Austin-San Antonio corridor. So four years ago, three years ago, when when I used to do presentations and Sean used to come to my presentations, this is kind of face-to-face in person, he knows that I used to talk about a corridor in Florida, right? So there was this corridor, you know, sort of from uh, Orlando going down all the way to Fort Myers. And I used to call it the corridor of opportunity. And then he probably noticed that two years ago, I started talking about a different corridor and this was much shorter. It's the Florida one was about 145 miles long. And the one, this one was much shorter, about 80 miles. It's from San Antonio in central Texas to Austin, San Antonio is the third largest city in texas austin is the state capital and then in between are some phenomenal towns very very powerful towns it's all populated there's no like open spaces in this 80 miles that corridor has now become so insanely popular so powerful that we have just seen in the brand new cbre report and all of this is tied back to the hybrid work disruptive trend in 2021 Some things happened that no one had predicted in real estate for decades. The lowest cap rates in America, San Francisco, New York, Boston, sometimes Los Angeles. That makes perfect sense, right? These are the big dogs in the report that came out, the CBRE report that came out for 2021, the lowest class A apartment cap rates in the United States were Dallas. The second lowest, Austin. The third lowest, San Antonio and San Francisco. Could you have imagined, Sean, that we would talk about San Antonio and San Francisco together? Even 10 years from now? And Dallas is more expensive than San Francisco on a cap rate basis. Correct. Dallas and Austin are more expensive than San Francisco. And the report shows like the top 15 metros new york has fallen all the way to 15. a few years ago it was numero uno and before that it was numero uno for a long time sometimes boston sometimes new york kind of going back and forth it's 15th in the list right it's joined sixth because a lot of them are you know the same cap rate so there's three or 4 that they're in the same slot bottom line is that's huge that's crazy these trends are amazing and it, it unquestionably is tied back to COVID. It's unquestionably tied back to high income white collar workers having the right to move when they do. And we're not talking about all of them. There's 80 million of them. Only 2 million have moved so far, right? So it's a small number. And we think only about 20 million will move or have the capability of moving because not all of them have jobs that are unchained from their desks. A lot of companies are like, no, no, come on back. We'll give you you know, two days a week off or three days a week off. You still have to live in my in the same metro. Only about twenty-two million can completely work from anywhere. But that in itself is a massive mountain. And it's changing things across the industry at a rate that is shocking, unpredictable. I mean, you just I I just Sean, I can't get over the fact that San Antonio has the third lowest cap rates in the United States. Dallas at number one, Austin at number two. I mean, Sure, we've been talking about Texas, 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 Texas for five years, but I didn't really think it would be so quick for the Gateway metros to just lose to Texas, and they've just been decimated. I'm
1: surprised by San Antonio. Like, I haven't heard too much about it except that it's a really affordable market. Um, people often use the seller financing strategies for single family properties. So to hear that, it's, you know, doing better or on the same pace as San
0: Francisco on the multifamily side is very surprising it's the big secret sean it's the big secret and the big reason is austin austin by the end of 2022 is expected to become the least affordable city in the united states now that doesn't mean that it will have the highest rents in the u.s affordability is tied to to salaries so if people in san francisco have higher salaries then they could pay more on rents but it would become the least affordable city in the united states and it's already the second lowest cap rate in the U.S., right? So where Austin's a juggernaut. Austin is, in my mind, unquestionably the new Silicon Valley. You can use whatever example you like, whether it's Oracle moving or Tesla moving or Musk moving. It really doesn't matter. I mean, you know, you. it's clear that people are fed up with California and its high taxation, you know, bureaucratic ways of doing things. Same thing with New York. And whoever can move are moving. The city that they seem to pick the most is Austin because it has better education levels than than Houston for sure, and even Dallas. So San Antonio is interesting in that it's 79 miles away. And South Austin is actually about 50 miles from North San Antonio. Nowhere else in the United States are two extremely fast-growing metros in such close proximity to each other. We've got metros that are close by, but usually one's hot and one's not. But here you've got the second lowest cap rate and the third lowest cap rate. In my mind, it's really Austin that's driving San Antonio's growth in in much the same way that you, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, we we sort of think of Sacramento as kind of the, the armpit, right? But on a percentage basis in the last 10 years, more money has been made in Sacramento as a percentage of growth than in the San Francisco Bay area because it started from a lower base and had a long way to go. In the same way, San Antonio was the affordable part of Texas, the only place where single-family homes still made sense, right, or renting single-family homes. At least they did until about 18 months ago and then it became unaffordable. But it was the affordable part, but it was better in terms of quality of life than Houston right? Dallas was also becoming expensive, so Houston was your other option, but San Antonio has nicer climate than Houston and tends to get hit by hurricanes a lot less than Houston does, So, and some people care about that, and you have access to Austin's amazing universities just north of you, right? So there were a lot of reasons for San Antonio to become that magnet for people that couldn't go to Austin or tried to go to Austin and couldn't live with the unaffordability. Well, isn't it easier to just drive down 80 miles and start a new life in, in San Antonio? So you're seeing this crazy population growth. Just so you know, in the last year, San Antonio's had the second highest population growth in the US, Austin's at number three. So now the tables are reversing in terms of most more recent data. So what I predict is going to happen is this and hybrid work this disruptive trend that i'm talking about is leading us to this san antonio austin will merge into a super metro it will become one single metro and for those that are skeptical i ask you to look at the san francisco Bay area san francisco to south san jose is actually 60 plus miles right and that entire area is one super metro with a bunch of big cities in the middle from, from South San Jose, going all the way east to Pittsburgh or Brentwood is like another 60 miles in a triangle. So the Bay Area is sort of a triangle. Some people would argue that it's not. But it's certainly very long from north of San Francisco, right, maybe Marin, to South you know, San Jose, or even further down now, going all the way to Gilroy. It's, it's already happened. It's happened before. We've seen it in other places. And I think this merger happens. So to me, I think the greatest revenue potential in the next 10 years is inside that corridor, not in San Antonio, not in Austin, but in the corridor. Yeah, in between.
1: And it's actually really funny that you're bringing this up because we didn't talk about this before, but my fiance and I are actually going to move from the Bay Area to Dallas. We're actually moving to Wow,
0: Texas. fantastic. You're going to where the action is. I mean, obviously, at Dallas has an incredible amount of action. We're talking about San Antonio. We're talking about Austin. But all of these... Texan cities are doing crazy things. Texas has now been ranked number one state in, this, in the U.S. for business 17 consecutive times. That should tell you something. 17 consecutive times. It also got ranked as the state of the decade um, you know, a few months ago.
1: Now, how are people dealing with like taxes? As, as you know, properties and taxes get reassessed almost every single year based on the mm-hmm. current value. Unlike in California, yep. where your property taxes are more or less frozen because of Prop 13. So, with all this crazy increase in prices, does it make it hard for some landlords to hold on to their properties? And if that's the case, what happens?
0: It does. But I think that you also get astonishing rent increases. So, I'll give you an example. Okay. So, in the US, rents increased at 12% last year, right? In Texas, they increased way more. San Antonio, for example, two bedrooms were, one bedroom was 17%, two bedrooms were 20%. So the answer is, taxes, property taxes are a royal pain in the ass in Texas. They're a real challenge. But if you have fast growth, that fast growth will raise prices. Well, that fast growth will also raise rents. And property taxes will always be a very big chunk of your expenses in texas so as a somebody who is analyzing properties you just have to be careful that your expense ratios in texas will always be higher than your expense ratios in other places including california which is a an expensive state right so you you just need more expense ratios because your property tax is just a huge portion of what you're doing this does not to answer your question, Sean, it doesn't prevent you from making money in Texas. It's just a different way of making money. You're, you're, you're in a faster growth environment, and that faster growth environment compensates for your massive increase in property taxes as long as this keeps going. Obviously, if the growth stops, then prices you know stop, right? At that point, your property taxes don't go up as much as, uh, anymore.
1: Yeah. So based on our last conversation that you had on the podcast, you mentioned all these great tools that you can use to find uh, market data to then use to like find markets, right? So we did that. We did exactly what you said. We went on saveyodata.com. We went on department of numbers slash jobs and we found great markets. And one of the markets that we found was Colleen. So it's very funny that you're talking about it today. Uh, Colleen is not in this quarter, right? It's not not. not south of Austin, actually north of Austin by about an hour or so. We were there for like a few weeks. It was actually pretty fun. We went to some escape games over in Colleen. Uh what are your thoughts about that market, like Clean Temple Metro?
0: I think it's incredible and I'll tell you why. So, you know, we we go back to my, my San Francisco Bay Area example. If you didn't want to live in San Francisco, you could go to a number of places. You could go to the Central Valley Corridor, you know, Madeira, Merced, Fresno, Modesto, Stockton. You had five cities as options and then of course you had sacramento at the top of that central valley corridor so you had really six different options you could also go down south of you know beyond us and and go down to places like santa cruz So you, there's a lot of outlets but if you look at a map of austin you have two choices if you want to go into greater Austin, because Austin's becoming very expensive. And by the way, just so I can give you an example of why people would move out to places like Killeen. Austin has become the one and only city in the history of the United States to jump an entire 100,000 valuation in home prices. What does that mean? It, 12 months ago, Austin home prices were under 400,000. So just a little bit under 400,000. Today they're over 500,000. In one year, the city jumped 100, which no city has ever done, like not even close. So when all of a sudden the city basically jumps home prices by 30, 35%, obviously there's gonna be people that can't afford to live there. So you have to look for places to go, all right? So if you're leaving Austin, where, where do you go? Well, if you go west, it's Fredericksburg, more expensive. So you can't go there. If you go south, it's San Marcos. Not substantial saving. If you go further south, there's New Braunfels. Once again, not substantial saving. So you've got two options. You can go into South San Antonio, which is 100 miles south, right? And definitely has some decent prices. Not North San, San Antonio. North San Antonio, especially Northwest San Antonio, really expensive, very low cap rates. So you go to the south part of San Antonio. So you have to go down 100 miles if you're leaving Austin. Or you can go up 67 miles to Killeen. And the catch is you can't live a hundred miles away and commute to Austin. But from Killeen to the to the to the domain, which is the super ultra-luxury, fancy retail mall in North Austin, is a 52-minute drive. So you can live in a nice apartment complex, brick-made, not stucco. Built in the 1990s in Killeen. Take a 52-minute drive and work at the domain where there's, you know, 50,000 people working. So North, North Austin obviously is more trendy than South Austin. There's more money there. There's, you know, lots of interesting stuff happening there. Everything, it's happening everywhere in Austin, but clearly at this point, that's the more expensive part. So you've got a lot of jobs supporting North Austin. Then you've got cities just above Austin, very expensive cities right just north of austin that you can also work in so killeen offers the only commute option available college station is the other thing but it's 106 miles i don't think that's a commutable option but i think that you know both for austin and for round rock which is a city north of austin you can absolutely commute from Killeen. and so imagine a place that i think is the next silicon valley and it only has one cheap outlet why would I not like Killeen? Absolutely. And so I guess what kind of deals are you looking at in Killeen? I'm in contract already. I've been chasing one for a long time. So I'm doing a dual deal there. So I, I'm i buying 137 unit. Prices are much lower, by the way, much lower than San Antonio. They're much, Austin of course is humongously expensive. So I'm building in Austin. There's no way I'm, I'm buying anything in Austin. I'm I'm building a multiple large projects in Austin. But when I when I'm talking about buying, even San Antonio is really expensive. I mean, 160,000 a door. Killeen, you're under one hundred thirty thousand a door for newer properties. You know, Killeen has like '90s builds that are under one hundred thirty thousand a door, so it's it's more reasonable. Obviously, you've got that whole well, it's a you know it's a uh, you know military town, and it doesn't have you know uh, diversity of jobs. I get that, but it's an outlet for Austin. So my investors who are investing in Killeen understand that they're giving up diversification for the prospect of extraordinary future growth. You know, they're they're close to a city where rents are, you know, spiraling above $2,000 per unit on average. And and or you can be in Killeen where rents are 1000 a unit. That's a $1,000 difference. We know what happened to Sacramento, right? So the, that gap got covered up. So that's my bet. And I have to say, it's a riskier bet than buying in San, San Antonio or in Houston or in Dallas. Killeen is a riskier bet. And I'm happy to say that to my investors. But I think it is a better bet than buying sub-four cap properties everywhere else.
1: Well, my fiance has one single family there and also a fourplex. And then we are uh, working on a property over in Temple. So it's it's very exciting, you know, like because those markets, as like you said, are cheap relative to Austin. Um, but they benefit from Austin's amazing growth. Yep,
0: yep. Yeah. And even if they were, I, I can tell you, even if Killeen was 20 miles further, it would still benefit, right? So you look at what's happening to Idaho Falls. It is a four-hour drive from Boise. Home prices went up 34% because in Boise, they went up 39%. Wow. d'Alene is three and a half hours from Boise, completely going insane. Tucson is 112 miles from Phoenix, completely going insane. Colorado Springs is not close to Denver, insane. Fort Collins, not close to Denver, insane. This stuff works. Anytime you look at a massive metro, you start seeing knock-on effects. Knoxville is pretty far from Nashville, but it's seeing similar cap rates to Knox, uh, to Nashville now, right? So so all of these examples that I just gave you, they're further than Killeen is from Austin.
1: Mm-hmm. So I guess the overall trend is that because of the pandemic, more and more like white-collar workers who have the ability to leave their jobs, like a small fraction of them are leaving, and that's causing this effect where if they're taking their high-income salaries from places like the Bay Area, possibly from New York and whatever, and then going yeah. to the cheaper markets, just like we are. right? We're moving to Dallas. Um, I already have a lot of properties. I have a lot of loans, and yet I can still qualify for a $500,000 loan for a primary residence in Dallas. Uh, so that means for me, I can buy basically whatever I want because a regular single-family home is only $200,000. A nice house is like 400000 in Dallas. Um, so we have more people like myself going in and just buying properties and not really caring to me about the purchase price.
0: I think, I think that's the right approach. Obviously, there's risks. The market could slow down. But I think that if it slows down, it's better to be in a metro with much higher population growth and much higher job growth. That's the best kind of defense you can have in a bad market. It's not perfect but it's as close to perfect as you're going to get. And then, you know, I love Texas. I love, we invest a lot in Texas. It's not like I'm, you know, a Texas guy. I invest in, in Florida. I invest in Georgia. I have, you know, multiple properties in Florida and Georgia. I have a huge number of properties in Utah. I invest in Idaho. I invest in Arizona. So it's not, you know, I'm not one of those guys that are just beating the drum saying Texas is it and, and everything else is crap. But I have to agree with the statement that Texas is the best.
1: And when markets shoot up like they are right now, does that make you worried at all? Like when markets grow too fast, too quickly?
0: Um, the answer is anytime something unusual happens, it worries me. So what I do is instead of worrying, I start looking at data. I start trying to understand why this is happening and. And now once I understand it, I stop worrying if I I understand why it's happening and and whether there's a chance of it reversing. So here's another disruptive trend, right? Real estate had a phenomenal run from 2011 to 2020. Everybody who was in that run got rich, agreed? That run happened because the Federal Reserve printed $4 trillion of money. Everybody knows about it. They, They called it quantitative easing. They flooded the market with liquidity yada 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 they started buying mortgage-backed securities we know the whole story everybody knows it right that was four trillion and the real estate market went up for 10 years okay went to levels that no one in 2010 would have imagined even before the pandemic now and and by the way 2008 was mostly a us-based crash yes other countries went into recession because of the us but it wasn't a worldwide crash i mean india and china were you know merrily going along at seven percent growth rates. In 2020, when COVID happened, it was a worldwide crash. And the world as a group now has plugged in $15 trillion of liquidity into the global financial system. 40% of all currency printed in the history of the world was printed last year and this year. 40% of all currency printed in the history of the world, all liquidity was printed last year and this year. So the question I ask you is this, if $4 trillion causes a 10 year boom, what does $15 trillion cause? And I think the answer is in the price of Bitcoin. Bitcoin gives you a sense of where the market is heading, even though it's a speculative asset. I don't own any Bitcoin, by the way. I don't own any cryptocurrency, but I do find that it's useful and instructive to look at it. People are like, oh, real estate's really expensive. Sean Pan said, 60 seconds ago, aren't you worried about real estate being expensive? The question is, what makes you think real estate is expensive? On January 1st of last year, the price of Bitcoin was 7,000. Today it's 63,000. So Bitcoin can be worth nine times more because we are printing money and we want to buy some sort of fixed asset. But real estate has gone up 40% in that time also a fixed asset, which produces income, by the way, Bitcoin doesn't. And we're worried about it being too expensive. How does that compute in your mind that one asset's gone up 9X and people are still buying like crazy? Another one's gone up 40%. And the 40% asset is a traditional asset that people buy. Now, of course, 100% of all you know asset managers in the world have real estate in their portfolio. It used to be called an alternative asset 10 years ago. We know that's not true anymore, right? So it is truly a solid, you know, asset class that every portfolio manager in the world has. So if it goes up by forty percent, when we print fifteen trillion dollars, why does that make it really expensive? That's the part that I fail to understand. It's because people don't understand that real estate prices are not rising because of real estate. They're rising because of macroeconomics. They're rising because of reasons that have nothing to do with real estate. You print this much liquidity and don't take any of it back. And by the way, of the 15 trillion printed worldwide, not a single dollar has been pulled out of circulation. And you might say, oh yeah, but that's gonna happen next year, okay? Answer this question, of the $4 trillion that the Federal Reserve printed in 2009, 10 and 11, how much did they manage to get back and pull out of circulation? 360 billion, 9% of that money was removed from the market in 10 years. Bottom line, you have to look at the macroeconomic trends and then say, is real estate too expensive? It's not because that $15 trillion was loaned into existence and is searching for yield. It is searching the world for yield. And we have the the cheapest real estate amongst industrialized nations. This also is something that always comes as a surprise to people. Please look at Canadian, Australian, British, you know, Swiss real estate. Look at Japanese real estate. Look at Singapore, look at Hong Kong. The US looks dirt cheap compared to anything. Nothing else provides rental income. People buy assets, they lose money on it for 10 years and then they break even. That's the story of assets in other places like India. We actually make money. On a tangible asset that you cannot make any more of, or at least substantially not more of. Yeah, we are—we're adding 300,000 apartment units in the United States. We're adding about four or five hundred thousand single-family. Fine, that's 800,000. But look at the population growth. We're not adding enough. And if we were, how is it that people can afford to pay 12% more than last year and still have 97% occupancy? What argument is there? For people that are saying we have enough real estate we don't have enough nowhere in the united states have we built a new freeway ring in the last 30 years not one city in the u.s has built one dallas had two rings still has them the bay area had a terrible infrastructure system still terrible nobody's building new freeways but the population is growing at roughly two to three million people a year if we don't build new infrastructure we can't build new homes unless we build them in the in the desert or in the boonies where nobody wants to live so bottom line is we've got this space that has freeways that has plumbing that has sewage and that space is not increasing and we're just trying to build more stuff in the middle this is called infill and so when that happens that land's going to get more expensive and that's what we're seeing today
1: so how is that happening like how are people affording to pay more for their rents And the fact that you have like less vacancies on your buildings.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, right? So one of the fallacies that I hear all the time, and I I can prove this one wrong in a minute, is people say, if incomes go up 3% a year, rents can only go up 3% a year. If they go up 4%, they have to return to the norm. While that sounds right, you know, math is like, oh yeah, my income goes up 3%. I should be able to afford more, you know, 3% more rent. It's actually, wrong. I'll give you an example. Sean and his girlfriend have moved to Dallas, and Sean and his girlfriend together make sixty thousand dollars a year. I'm just making up a number, right? Just sixty just seems to be an easy number to do math on. So they make sixty grand a year, five thousand a month, right? So they're kind of a lower middle class family, they don't make a lot of money, right? And they live in an apartment because Dallas's home prices are too high for them. So Sean gets a raise, or his you know. Uh, his girlfriend gets a raise and their income goes up and maybe it goes up by 4%. Right now, incomes are rising much faster than that because of inflation, but let's just say 4%. So on 60 grand, Sean, your income would go up roughly $2,400 a year, correct? That's 4%. Now most people are like, okay, so he can afford to pay more in rent, but what is he going to pay for? Here's the evidence from the last five or six years when rents get expensive, We've, we prioritize rents. And we certainly did that during the recession. That's why you didn't see rents fall by much. That's why you didn't see much delinquency. And we, we prioritize food. What we are seeing in the United States, and it's really terrible that this is happening, but it's also the truth, is that people's increases in their salary are almost entirely going into just two things. They are not going to buy new electronics. They're not going to buy new cars. People are doing that with their existing salary, but their new salary, remember the $2,400 a year that Sean and his wife make, or his girlfriend make now, extra? Half of it is going towards food because food inflation is very high. Guess where the other half is going? Rent. So if you can afford to pay $1,200 more in rent, that's a lot more than 3%. Because maybe you were paying twelve hundred dollars already, right, and, and sorry, you maybe you were paying about twelve hundred dollars a month, so maybe that's fifteen grand a year. When to that fifteen grand a year that you were paying for your apartment, you add twelve percent that's eight percent more. so even though Sean's salary or his wife, you know girlfriend's salary only the family salary grew by four, rents can grow by eight. Because what is happening today and has been happening for almost 10 years is 50% of all new income dollars are going to rent, hmm. which means that if, you know, salaries grow by three, rents can grow by six, salaries grow by two, rents can grow by four. That is a that is one of the most key things that most people do not understand about multifamily, that this whole concept of these rent growth is not uh, you know sustainable, sure, the last twelve months completely unsustainable, twelve percent but then the government actually plugged the one and a half trillion dollars directly into the pockets of lower income people right checks were sent out one and a half trillion dollars, larger than the government's you know non entitlement budget was was plugged into people's pockets, so they had this one time extra money and they've spent it. In the future, yes, 12% is unsustainable. Question is, is 6% unsustainable? I'm not so sure.
1: Yeah. How long do you think this trend is going to continue where people are going to be moving from these major metros, like in the Bay area to more tertiary markets like Killeen or Temple?
0: I I think it's a, it's a long-term trend. I don't think that this is a short-term trend because you know, you know, this, you've been to my presentations from three or four years ago. I've been highlighting this trend for a while. It's just the number of people that were moving in 2017, 18, and 19 was really much smaller compared to 2020 when a larger number of people moved. So we've accelerated an existing trend. People are moving from less affordable places to more affordable places. So your question really is, when does this stop happening? Well, when those places become more affordable. I don't see the San Francisco Bay Area getting more affordable. I don't see New York getting more affordable. So until and unless an equilibrium is reached where these gateway metros stop being so expensive, I don't think that this trend can reverse. I think that at some point it can slow down, but I'm pretty sure we're not there. Remember, of the 22 million, 2 million have moved. So we've got ammunition for 10 years.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we're part of that move as well. We're going to be going to Dallas in three months or so and uh there
0: you go another white collar worker lost to texas
1: only for a few years while we built the business but yeah i mean it's great we go there food is a lot cheaper gas is only like 270 um, affordability like housing prices are like five times cheaper over there so yeah it's a pretty easy decision for us um but meanwhile we're keeping this house too to rent it out long term so i, I don't want to sell my property here because i don't want to sell it i can't buy back in Makes
0: sense. I, I I still think that the Bay Area is great. I I live here. I I probably will always live here. But I live here, knowing that I can afford to live here. I tell my kids, either be very aggressive with your careers and shoot for a very high number, or get out.
1: Yeah, makes sense. So Neil, it's been amazing having you back on our show. Thank you so much for sharing all of these amazing disruptive trends and talking about like what's going to happen in the market in the future. I love these hypotheses. I love the theories. And, you know, I've been going to your meetups for about four or five years now. And I've been seeing, yeah, basically almost everything you say comes true. So before we end our show today, I'd like to give you another opportunity to just talk a little bit more about what you guys do. And uh, as as some you know, last words of wisdom for our guests.
0: Absolutely. Well, firstly, anyone that's listening should look at Killeen. I think there's options there for you for single family if you like syndication we're doing a project this by the way is our first value add in a year until i found killeen and was convinced i would just given up on value adds. i was just building new development you know properties uh, we also have a fund coming up uh it's as you can imagine it's an austin fund it also has san antonio components so there's there's some interesting things happening there if you just want access to our data and you want to have nothing to do with investing with us? The best place to go to is multifamilyu.com. In fact, even if you want to have, you know, m- more um, access to our projects, multifamily followed by the letter u.com is perfect. Multifamilyu.com, or just simply Google my name, Neil Bawa, N-E-A-L Bawa, B-A-W-A. I happen to be the only Neil Bawa on the web, so if you're searching for crap on me, you'll find it really easily. Um, I haven't found it yet, but I'm sure you can find it. That's you know, the best way to, to work with us. We are frustrating sometimes in that we won't offer projects for a long time if we don't feel good about what we're doing, if we don't see a clear path forward. As I mentioned, we haven't done a value add in over a year, but now we see a clear path forward. Now we see a change that we feel is sustainable and that we feel like we know that we're going to win by going into a certain marketplace. So we're about to aggressively move forward.
1: Wonderful. So if anyone wants to learn more about you and what you guys do, check out multifamilyu.com. All right, Neil, thank you again so much for being on the show. It was an honor and a pleasure to have you back on. Thanks so much, Sean. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.